What a great Lord's Day we've had so far, and hopefully we'll end well. The next 50 minutes will tell us. I've adjusted my preaching schedule in a couple of ways. It happens on occasion. I try to be fairly consistent, but uh, sometimes you have to make an adjustment. First of all, I'm adding a couple of messages to the Numbers series. There's just too much richness in there, and I just decided to kind of blow my routine, and I'm going to slow it down just a little bit. Um, We've been flying pretty fast through it. But second, as I was studying the book of Numbers um, on Friday, I came across a passage that literally drove me to my knees. And I knew in about five seconds, I think I'm preaching this Sunday night, and I, I just needed to. It's something I'm burdened to share with you because it addresses directly the tense and difficult times that we're facing in the church of Jesus Christ So the title of my message this evening is, What About Jehoshaphat, A Call to Costly Worship? What About Jehoshaphat, A Call to Costly Worship? The theological question of our day really centers around worship. The assembly of God's people together and more specifically, what rights do any other entity have to modify our worship in any way? It's a hot button. It's not going away anytime soon. You have on the one hand, J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, pastor of the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina. Their church has chosen not to meet at all as one body for the rest of the year. According to their website, quote, because they're following the Holy Spirit. Then you have on the other hand, John MacArthur, pastor of Grace Community Church, openly saying the governor or the health department is not the head of the church. We must obey Christ who is the head, taking on governing authorities in court and continuing to meet in person as a church because, as MacArthur says, they are following the word of God. So this brings us to a little problem, doesn't it? If you compare the Summit Church, which is following the Holy Spirit, And Grace Community Church, which is following the Word of God, now apparently the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are at odds with one another. And there is a contradiction. In North Carolina, you may meet as a church now, and yet they're not. In California, you can't, not indoors at least, and yet they are. This is a debate that already has and will for I think a few years leave a scar on the church. And it has divided Christians. A couple of weeks ago, I put up a video explaining the historical position of major theologians going all the way back to Augustine concerning Romans 13 and then the issue of when to obey the government and when the government has overstepped. And and I said in that video that the clear position of the greatest minds in history on Romans 13 is that the form and the function of worship is out of bounds for the government for any reason whatsoever. Well, like many pastors, I've been searching the scriptures. I've been looking for guidance, for help. I've been in prayer, begging God for help with this. The scriptures alone are a source of authority. And while we may find some helpful thoughts from other sources, like health sources and things like that, ultimately our goal as Christians is to please God, not men. And so to that end, there is a man in scripture that I would like for you to meet His name is Jehoshaphat. He is the fourth king of the southern Jewish kingdom of Judah. Jehoshaphat reigned 25 years, and he faced some terrifying situations in his capital city of Jerusalem. So turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 
Second Chronicles 20. And I'd like to simply ask the question of each of you, what about Jehoshaphat? What about Jehoshaphat? What about Jehoshaphat? What would he say to us today? Now, the Holy Spirit inspired this text to relay this event. But before we get to the actual event, let me give you the bigger picture. Uh, The bigger picture is that God promised Abraham to preserve a people for all time. And through this people of Israel, which are now fractured into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, during this period in history here in 2 Chronicles 20, and though the human kings of God's people frequently fail, the promise to Abraham is that God will preserve Israel Because it's through Israel that God will send the perfect divine and human king, Jesus Christ. And Jesus will not only save from their sins all who would repent and place their faith in him. He also will reign in person on earth over a restored Israel and over the whole earth. And so the kings of Israel, even the best ones, are merely a shadow. They're a darkened preview of the light of the world, the glorious King of Kings, the glorious Lord of Lords. But for now, we focus on the king that God has in Judah, Jehoshaphat, reigning in the 9th century B.C., and Jehoshaphat is in trouble. Second Chronicles 20, verse 1, After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea. The Meunites are coming. They were an Arabian tribe living in Edom, east of Israel on the other side of the Jordan River. Joining them were the Moabites and the Ammonites, pretty much continual enemies of Israel. Jehoshaphat has learned that they are already at Hazanon Tamar. This is in the Engedi wilderness, meaning that they are on the west shore of the Dead Sea, basically about a day's march from Jerusalem. They're close. And this was apparently a horde of soldiers, an overwhelming force that had been planned for some time to seize the city of Jerusalem and wipe out the Israelites. So what would you do in Jehoshaphat's place? Well, I would assume he would gather his armies as quickly as possible. I would assume that he might quickly get more men armored up from the surrounding towns, maybe bring in as much food and water as possible into the city to prepare for what could be a siege lasting months. Maybe he would draw battle plans. Maybe he would give speeches to his soldiers and inspire them to fight. But that's not what Jehoshaphat did. He didn't do any of those things. He was terrified What was his response? His response was, oh no, we're surrounded. We're all going to die. We'd better go to church. That was his response. Verse three. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. He was afraid. And what was his immediate response? The text says he set his face to seek the Lord. This is a phrase that means he could do nothing else. He was determined. And the fact the Hebrew word order here is important. If you did sort of a wooden Hebrew translation, it would say, feared set Jehoshaphat his face to seek the Lord. In other words, feared and set his face appear as one verb, as Jehoshaphat's immediate response to his fear. 
He proclaims a national fast to get everyone focused on prayer and prayer alone. Verse 4 says that Judah assembled all the cities of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek God, to cry out to him. And so what I'd like to do this evening is just simply interview Jehoshaphat, as it were. We can ask him some questions, and I think the answers that he'll give to us will be very instructive from the text of Scripture. And so we're going to ask and answer eight questions of Jehoshaphat. First question we would ask of him is, Jehoshaphat, why did you gather your people in worship? Why did you gather your people in worship? His answer, to proclaim God's sovereign power and grace. To proclaim God's sovereign power and grace. To make a proclamation. Verse 5. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. There was a new addition to the courtyard surrounding the temple of God in Jerusalem. And this formed the center stage for the assembly of God's people. Crammed in as many as they could and as far out as they had to. And Jehoshaphat goes to the Lord in prayer. And first, he proclaims God's sovereign power. In verse 6, he said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. He proclaims God's sovereignty. What, what are some of the elements of God's sovereignty that Jehoshaphat proclaims? I can just give you a few. He first of all proclaims the solitariness of God. The solitariness of God says that God alone is in heaven. He shares his glorious existence with none other. He shares his glory with no one. He also highlights the self-determination of God. That from heaven, he alone rules all kingdoms on the earth. They do only as he directs, only as he allows. There are no other variables in play. God determines to rule the kingdoms of the world, and he does. He simply does because he wills to do so. And so he... We see the self-determination of God. Jehoshaphat also points out the strength of God. He says, in your hand are power and might. Power speaks of his, his strength, his potency. Just how potent is God? He is omnipotent. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And he points us then also to the superiority of God. The superiority of God, he says, in your hand are power and might. Might speaks of his dominance over all other powers. That not only does he have power, he has more of it than anybody. And so the sovereignty of God that Jehoshaphat proclaims, he proclaims the solitariness of God, the self-determination of God, the strength of God, the superiority of God. And secondly, Jehoshaphat proclaims God's sovereign grace. His kindness, that which we don't deserve. Verse 7. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it forever to the descendants, here's the grace, of Abraham, your friend? Jehoshaphat is appealing to God's promise to Abraham, and he calls Abraham God's friend. The promise is that his descendants would possess this land. Jehoshaphat and the current people, they've done nothing to, to deserve this land except being in the right family. That's it. That's all they've done. And we can relate to this. This may be similar to your salvation because perhaps you have a parent or or a grandparent or a friend who begged God for your salvation. And because of God being the friend of the believer who prayed, he willed that you be saved. Not, Not any merit of your own, but simply because God is gracious. And so Jehoshaphat is humbly extolling God's greatness 
And he's basically saying, please defend us for the sake of your name, because you're great, because of your sovereign power, because of your sovereign grace. So question number one, Jehoshaphat, why did you gather your people in worship? First, to proclaim God's sovereign power and grace. He starts there. If we could ask him another question, we might ask Jehoshaphat, what did you do to lead your people to have faith in God? What did you do to lead your people to have faith? His answer, I appealed solely and only to the mercy of God. I appealed solely and only to the mercy of God. Jehoshaphat now issues his complaint, a cry for mercy. And we go down to verse 10. He says, and now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. We saw this recently in our study of numbers that God did not allow Israel to fight Edom, the region of Mount Seir. Why? Because they're related. They're family. God wouldn't allow it. But now the Meunites, a fierce tribe living in Edom, and perhaps some of the Edomites are with them also, they've brought the battle to them. Back in the book of Numbers, we saw that Israel could have wiped out the Edomites, but they didn't. They turned away humbly. And now Jehoshaphat is saying, remember how we obeyed you? Remember how we didn't destroy them when we could have? And his complaint is, this is unjust, this is unreasonable, this is undeserved. But this army is coming in seemingly countless numbers. Verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. The horde, it literally means a roar of turmoil. It's something you can hear. This is an army so vast, so huge that you can hear them coming. And very soon the watchmen of Jerusalem would look to the south and they would see a horizon darkened by the masses. They would hear the distant shouts of these coming multitudes and they would feel the tumult of the marching soldiers coming at them. This is terrifying. There's no defense. There's no escape. There's no way out. And so Jehoshaphat simply appeals to God's mercy. At the end of verse 12, we do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. That's all he can do. This is very poignant. God, we don't know what to do. All we can do is look to you. We have no other option. And how is it that their eyes are on God alone? They were gathered together ostensibly until they heard from the Lord. They were like Jacob in the book of Genesis when he wrestled with God and said, I will not let go until you bless me. And so essentially... They're saying, we're not moving. We're not going anywhere until we hear from the Lord. So the second question, Jehoshaphat, what did you do to lead your people to faith in God? I appealed solely and only to the mercy of God. We could ask him a third question. Jehoshaphat, what did you see in your people? What did you see in your people? And his answer would be, I saw people who were afraid like me. His people were afraid. Verse 13 Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. This is a a poignant description. Parents standing next to their babies, next to their toddlers, children who could be impaled on the end of an enemy spear in the next 24 hours. 
these armies were marching north toward Jerusalem. We've already seen that Jehoshaphat was afraid. Twice in verses 14 through 17, the people of God are said to be afraid and dismayed. Afraid and dismayed. Afraid, we understand. Dismayed is a whole nother level. A whole different area of fear. To be dismayed, it means to be utterly shattered with terror. You can't even function. You're so terrified. They're terrified. They're horrified. They're shattered. Would they lose their homes? Contemplating the question, will I face an enemy soldier who will thrust his sword into my abdomen? Will he cut my head off? Will I be able to defend and protect my wife and my children? Will they die a horrible death? Will I die a horrible death? But look at how God assured them and comforted them. Verse 14. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow... Go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Juriel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Now those are some promises. Those are serious promises. They're to go face the enemy by faith the next day. They were simply to stand firm, hold their position, and watch God work. What's the main important promise? The Lord will be with you. That's the promise they really needed. We could ask Jehoshaphat a fourth question. Jehoshaphat, what did the people do in response to a new confidence in God? What did the people do in response to a new confidence in God? Answer, they worshipped their God. They worshipped. Verse 18, Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshipping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Listen, these two verses are cram-packed with worship. They're packed with worship. They contain some of the most important worship words in all of the Old Testament, all put together. It says, Jehoshaphat bowed his head. Literally means he knelt down on the ground. Once he knelt, he put his face to the ground. Then all the people fell down before the Lord. It specifically means to put yourself in an inferior position to a superior They were worshiping the Lord. This is yet another word for bowing down. Three different words for bowing down to God. Bowing down to God. Bowing down to God. And then after that, the Levites stood up. After bowing down, they stood to praise the Lord. And how are they doing this? With a very loud voice. What does that mean? It means the choir was singing. It means the Levites were singing unto God. But did you notice something? God hasn't actually done anything yet. These are not songs of gratitude. These are not praises of something that has been done. These are songs of faith, songs of trust. 
This is an exclamation of trusting what the Lord will do. We could ask Jehoshaphat a fifth question. Jehoshaphat, how did your people face the enemy? And his answer would be, they faced the enemy by worshiping God. No, Jehoshaphat, you don't understand. We, we already know that they just worshiped. But what did they do when they actually had to face the enemy? They faced the enemy by worshiping God. Listen to the great speech of confidence by Jehoshaphat, verse 20. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Jerusalem and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And now Jehoshaphat is going to gather his army. He's being responsible. But the army is not the real weapon. Verse 21, and when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. What did he just do? He put the choir in front of the army. And what does this remind us of? This reminds us of Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. And let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. What did the armies do? They sent the choir out front because they were the point of the spear. We could ask Jehoshaphat a sixth question. Let's get more specific. Jehoshaphat, what was the weapon of your warfare? What was the weapon of your warfare? And I think you're guessing this. His answer is our weapon was our voices of song and worship. Our weapon was our voices of song and worship. Verse 22 And when they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. What triggered this? When they began to sing and praise. Verse 23, For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Ha! God has turned the enemies of Israel on each other. I've always wondered what this looked like when you have the last two guys and one kills the other. Does the last one kill himself? I don't know how that works. But in any case, Israel didn't even have to fight. And look at this. They never even saw it happen. They never saw it happen. Verse 24. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde. And behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. Apparently, the last guy was dead. Verse 25, when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. Not only did God blow away this enemy army, he brought treasure to them and provided for them. Not a single Israelite soldier died or even had to fight. Verse 26, on the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakah to this day. There's a sense of wonder. 
There's a sense of awe. There's certainly mystery to this. I want to have us think about the times in Scripture when worship is the weapon of the Lord. When worship is the weaponry of God's people. You probably will remember some of these. Joshua chapter 6, the conquest of Jericho. God had the people of Israel march around Jericho with the priests and the Ark of the Covenant of God. God's throne on earth with seven trumpets. In this case, the trumpet players are going before the army. On the seventh day, the priests were to blow the trumpets before the Ark of the Lord. In other words, in the presence of God and unto God. The the trumpet blowing wasn't some sort of weird intimidation tactic against the inhabitants of Jericho. It was an act of worship to the God of Israel. And what happened to the walls of Jericho? They fell down. We could think of Judges chapter 7. God commissioned Gideon to save Israel from the oppressing Midianites. God would receive all glory for the victory. And so he reduced Gideon's army from 32,000 men down to 300. The camp of the enemy, Judges 7 verse 12 says, was so vast that the soldiers were like sand on the seashore. You couldn't count them. And how did God win a victory over tens of thousands with just 300? By blowing trumpets of worship to God. Again, just like with Jehoshaphat, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. It works for God to do this. How about Acts chapter 16? Paul and Silas had been beaten and imprisoned for their proclamation of the gospel in Philippi. And you recall that a young demon-oppressed slave girl who was used by her owners to make money and fortune-telling had been freed from this evil spirit by the power of Christ. Paul and Silas then were brought before the court and false charges of breaking Roman law were laid against them. The magistrates tore the garments off of Paul and Silas. He had them beaten with rods, had them put in the inner part of the prison and their feet Fastened in stocks, and you know the story from Acts 16, 25, about midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Several times in the Bible, the weaponry of God's people is worship. How about the Lord Jesus Christ himself? The victory Jesus would need was not to avoid the cross, but to go faithfully all the way to the cross to carry out his father's will in paying the penalty of sin on behalf of all who would believe on him. Jesus, fully human while fully God, needed to prepare for that battle because, listen, Satan did not want him to go to the cross. You remember from this morning, earlier in his ministry, Peter It rebuked Jesus for saying he was going to Jerusalem to die and be raised from the dead. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Satan did not want Jesus going to the cross. And so how did Jesus prepare for this spiritual battle? He prepared with corporate worship three times. First, he faithfully took the Passover meal with his disciples. He told the disciples, I have have longed to celebrate this with you. He longed to be with them in this worship, this celebration Second, he didn't say, see you guys, I need to go away somewhere secret and pray. He didn't say that. No, he took them to a familiar place where he had taught them where they had learned the word of God under his instruction. He took them to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he needed to pray, but he didn't want to be alone. 
He wanted to be with them, and he instructed his disciples to watch and pray with him. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36, records, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? In his humanity, Jesus needed the company of his men. He needed to be with them. Men who certainly would desert him soon enough, but who could pray with him as he prayed. There's a third way he worshipped to prepare for this battle at the end of the Passover before they went to the garden. Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples to close out the Passover celebration. Throughout the evening, they would have sung the Hallel, Psalms 113, 114, 115, 116, 117. And now they ended on, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. And let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Does that sound familiar? Yes. Because the appointed singers of Jehoshaphat saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Corporate worship as the weapon of God's people. By the way, that's not the last time in the Bible. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, records heaven's preparation for the second coming of Christ to defeat all his enemies. And what do you think comes right before the battle of Armageddon on earth? Ten verses of worship in heaven. Things like hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. Things like praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Things like hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. And immediately after this heavenly expression of worship, you hear, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. Jehoshaphat, what was the weapon of your warfare? Our weapon, the voices of song and worship. It's the seventh question. What did God do through this victory? What did God do through this victory, Jehoshaphat? And his answer would be, he accomplished his purposes for Israel. He accomplished his purposes for Israel. What's the divine purpose of the nation of Israel? Well, it's very formally given to us in Exodus 19, beginning in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
And here's the purpose. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, a kingdom of priests is a kingdom that shows God to all the nations. As one of my seminary professors liked to say, that Israel's job was to make God big in the world. So what happened after God won this great victory? Look with me at verse 27. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for God gave him rest all around. Did you see what just happened in verse 29? The fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. He accomplished his purposes. And how did he do it? They never lifted a finger except to pick up all the treasure. That's it. They worshiped. We do one more question. Question number eight. Jehoshaphat, looking back, what advice would you give to true believers in God? What advice would you give to true believers in God? And Jehoshaphat's answer would be stay faithful and finish strong. Stay faithful and finish strong. What was the overall assessment of Jehoshaphat by God? Verse 32, he walked in the way of Asa, his father, and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. But he had compromised along the way in two significant ways. Verse 33, the high places, however, were not taken away. The people had not yet set their hearts upon the God of their fathers. These high places were alternative places of worship with worship of false gods. And the Israelites had continued to keep their options open, to keep the option of idolatry open. And Jehoshaphat had not destroyed those high places as he should have. And so what was the result? Oh, absolutely. The people showed tremendous faith in a crisis. But it didn't necessarily become a lifestyle of trusting and worshiping God alone. Can I put it this way? That glorious worship service they had when these three tribes were headed north from the Dead Sea was probably not repeated anytime soon. It was a one-time thing. Jehoshaphat had a second failure. Verses 35 through 37, he tried to join himself in a venture to build trading ships with the wicked king Ahaziah of Israel, God did not bless this venture. And in fact, the ships were wrecked because Jehoshaphat had trusted in his own devices, his own abilities, and God brought it to ruin. He'd forgotten the lesson learned at the Valley of Barakah, the Valley of Blessing. For there they blessed the Lord. There they worshiped. He'd forgotten that lesson. There's never a time in life when the greatest spiritual Weapon of God's people is not worship. That's always the greatest weapon, to state that in the positive. So, Jehoshaphat, why did you gather your people in worship? To proclaim God's sovereign power and grace. Jehoshaphat, what did you do to lead your people to faith in God? I appealed solely and only to the mercy of God. Jehoshaphat, what did you see in your people? I saw people who were afraid like me. Jehoshaphat, what did the people do in response to your new confidence in God? They worshiped their God. Jehoshaphat, how did your people face the enemy? They faced the enemy by worshiping God. Jehoshaphat, what was the weapon of your warfare? Our weapon was our voices of song and worship. What did God do through this victory? He accomplished his purpose for Israel. And Jehoshaphat, looking back, 
What advice would you give to true believers in God? Stay faithful and finish strong. Now, as we interview Jehoshaphat, we look at the clock and we see we have time for one more question. Jehoshaphat, is there ever a time to stop or put limits on the worship of God? Is there ever a time to stop or put limits on the worship of God? Answer, no, not ever. Listen, in Jehoshaphat's prayer, he reminds God of the prayer of Solomon from 1 Kings 8. I asked Darren to read that earlier because it helps set the context. 1 Kings 8 is Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, the official place of worship in Israel. And Solomon's prayer included a a long section asking God to protect his people if they would, and this is the condition, if they would gather in worship in any and every circumstance. And Jehoshaphat calls this to account with God. Look back with me at verse 6. He stood in the assembly, verse 5, of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, and now he refers back to the prayer of Solomon. Verse 9, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, We will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. What if disaster comes? We'll stand before this house and before you. What if the sword comes, meaning danger from those who can harm us? We will stand in this house and before you. What if judgment comes, God himself rebuking us and punishing us for our unfaithfulness? We will stand before this house and before you. And what if pestilence comes? What if a disease that could kill you comes? We will stand before this house and before you. What if famine comes? What if we're starving? We will stand before this house and before you. Why? For your name is in this house and we will cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. In other words, the greatest weapon against the fears and the terrors all around is the gathered corporate worship of the people of God what about Jehoshaphat what about Jehoshaphat what are you going to do with Jehoshaphat how would you answer him who proved his faith to be genuine that when his knees were knocking together when his heart was sinking and his stomach churning in fear and his he's shattered with terror he placed himself helplessly in the one truly safe zone he had worship Listen, in the sovereign plan of God to bring this coronavirus crisis to our world, never think for one moment this is merely about a disease. It's not. The disease is merely the mechanism. There's a massive spiritual battle raging and the weapon of evil being wielded is not the virus itself. It is the invisible battle happening all around Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
The battle is not about masks or no masks. The battle is not about conspiracies or no conspiracies. And it's certainly not about saving our own lives. Psalm 139 verse 16 says that God has already numbered your days exactly. What does that mean? It means you're not going to extend your life by one day. You're not going to do it. And here is at least part of the battle that's raging around us. And simultaneously, something that God is using to winnow and to sift the church of Jesus Christ. Coronavirus has exposed a safe, risk-free Christianity. A Christianity that hesitates to apply the principles of faith and trust in the Lord in an actual real-life situation. And how do we know this? Well, the abject fear which has grasped the hearts of so many believers. Did you notice the fear in this text? Verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid. Verse 15, the people were afraid and dismayed, shattered with terror. Verse 17, the people were afraid and dismayed, shattered with terror. You know how many times the Bible says, do not fear? 365. What does that tell you? How about one a day? Do not fear. Take your vitamins and do not fear. Once a day. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean you're in sin if you use precautions. I'm not going to jump out of an airplane and say, I don't need a parachute because the Lord has numbered my days. Yes, sovereignly, that's the last one. (laughs) That's it. We still wear seatbelts. We try to exercise, eat reasonably. But if your trust is in those precautions, you, my brother and sister, are an idolater. What does that mean if you trust those precautions? It means your faith has been misplaced and the object of your faith replaced. What's our greatest spiritual weapon we possess in the face of terror and fear? Worship. It is worship. Listen, don't believe the theory of do not be afraid and then back down when it's time to actually live it. Don't betray that your faith and your life are separate. Don't fall for the lie of a safe, risk-free Christianity. Being a Christian is the most dangerous thing you can do on planet Earth. How do we know this? Because according to Jesus, according to the Apostle John, the world and its system hates followers of Jesus Christ, hates them, hates you. There is no genuine faith without danger. Listen, Christians have been led to slaughter. They've been suffering countless types of suffering since the time of the Apostles. There's going to be a day when Antichrist is massacring all who will not take the mark of the beast. And you know what happens to you according to the book of Revelation? If you won't take the mark of the beast, you don't get to participate in the economy. How many professing Christians will say, well, I need to feed my family. I'd better take the mark. How many will do it? You have got to honestly, honestly before God search your heart And seek down into the inner recesses of your soul. And you've got to answer the question, what am I afraid of? What fear is driving me? And if your answer to that question is instantly nothing, then your pride just answered for you. Because you know what? You're afraid of what you fear. If you answer that question too quickly, you are afraid of what you fear. All of us have a dark box that holds our fears. And this box must be opened It must be exposed. It must be called out that fear will have no dominion over you. And what will you place in that box instead? In the face of that fear, you worship God with his people. Can I tell you something? 
your right, your privilege, and your duty to worship God with God's people was purchased for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. And no man can modify or withhold or give that privilege. It's already been given. How dare any human governor say, I give you permission to worship. Sorry, already given at the cross. My pastor friend, Rick, in Kenya, I mentioned him this morning. He wrote me recently and very politely basically said how surprised he is that America lacks in trust in the Lord. He wrote, quote, The devil has corroded the church in these end times. About the sense of God in my country, he said, I see God calling us back to his worship. In these perilous times, he is calling us to worship him in spirit and truth. People have forgotten his holy tabernacle of worship. But because of his mercies, he is calling us back to his truthful service in him. Well said. Very well said. But I have some even better words. Would you turn with me to Psalm 118? Psalm 118. We're going to read together Psalm 118, verses 1 through 9. Let's read this together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, Let his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. What about Jehoshaphat? What about Jehoshaphat? What will you do about Jehoshaphat? You must answer that question. But I'd like to quote Joshua. As for me and my house, what's the rest of it? We will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, no man gives us the right to worship you. Christ alone gave us that right. Christ alone gave us that privilege. Christ alone has given us that duty. And it is not because of a governor or because of a law or a so-called law or a repeal of a law that we may gather and worship. It is because of the cross. And we are so thankful for this weapon that you have given to us, Lord. And certainly no guarantee that Our life in this world will be immediately saved. We'll all die. And yet we see very clearly that we are called to be faithful to you. Oh, Lord. I would rather stand before you and have to answer the question, why did you worship me too much? Than to answer, why did you not worship me when it was the singular thing you were supposed to be doing? Lord, may the churches of Jesus Christ gather again. May they have the courage of their convictions to come together because it will be then that you bless our nation. It will be then that you bless our county and our state 
when the Christians gather and extol the greatness of our God. Be gracious and merciful to us. Give us courage, Lord. Deliver us from our own fears. Deliver us from that which would make us afraid and instead remind us that your steadfast love endures forever. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.